0: And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church.
1: Good morning. I would like to speak to you today from this thought, nothing new under the sun. We are coming to you today in an effort to allow the Lord to speak to our heart through His Word. While we are in a season that seems like it's uncharted waters, And while our method of speaking to you today may seem somewhat unorthodox, we should take the heart of the words of the wisest man to ever live, and that would be King Solomon. In Ecclesiastes 1 and 9, Solomon reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. That seems odd to us because we have the tendency to feel isolated, especially when we're going through things that are new to us. I remember a little over 25 years ago now, I was in the throes of trying to make a decision that was certainly going to affect our family and indirectly affect our church. My wife and I had prayed and fasted and sought counsel from God. We had also sought the counsel of some trusted ministers that we knew had our best interest at heart. I remember especially feeling led one day to call an elder that I had great confidence in. I explained to him what we were facing, and I explained the decisions that were before us. When I made my case, he simply said, Brother Boyd, if you could look in the sands of time, you would see my footprints beside yours. He went on to say that about 30 years prior to that, he had been standing in the very place where I stood. That statement alone gave me so much hope. Within just a few words, he reminded me of what Solomon had penned centuries before. There is nothing new under the sun. As the word of the coronavirus began to spread and most certainly when it reached America's shores, a spirit of fear seemed to strike the hearts of many of our citizens. As authorities began to search for options to decrease the escalation of this virus, plans were put in place to help us minimize the impact that this would have on our nation's families. Therefore, we started hearing phrases like, social distancing. Authorities are merely asking that we be wise. Of course, as a nation, we are feeling both the short-term and bracing for the long-term effect that this is going to have on us as individuals and our families and perhaps even the world. However, please let me remind you of those words that Solomon penned once again. There is nothing new under the sun. Yesterday, a pastor friend of mine shared something that had been shared with him. In the fall of 1918, there was an epidemic of influenza. Therefore, a public notice was issued as an effort to help decrease the impact that this would have on lives around the world. I want to take a few moments and read to you a few of those quotes. In order that all efforts be made to concentrate on stamping out the disease, the local board of health is enacted that on a certain date and until further notice, theaters and moving picture houses shall be closed and remain closed. Churches and chapels of all denominations shall be closed and remain closed. All schools, public or private, including Sunday schools, shall close and remain closed. Hospitals shall be closed to visitors no public shall be admitted to courts except those essential to the prosecution of the case. The board advises the public most strongly not to crowd into streetcars and avoid as much as possible any crowded train or assembling of any kind. Another order was issued and that order was the Board of Commissioners and the Board of Health closing churches, theaters, moving picture houses, dance halls, pool rooms, lodge rooms, saloons, soda fountains, and other places where numbers of people would congregate. That that order, about a month later, was withdrawn, going into effect on November the 3rd, 1918. My point in sharing that with you today is pretty straightforward. It's back to those words of Solomon, there is nothing new under the sun. And so while our generation may certainly be feeling the effects of this for the first time. And while we may say that we are in uncharted waters, we have to realize that as the Lord kept his hand on his people then, he will keep his hand on his people today. We're blessed to live in an hour where we have so many different alternatives available to us. Technology allows us to be able to stay connected even in this hour of social distancing. We're going to get through this. In the future, things will normalize again, but in the meanwhile, we're going to use every method available to us to stay connected and to keep us connected as a church as well. In just a moment, Brother Chris Osborne, who was already scheduled to speak today, is going to be sharing with us a lesson from our Discipleship Project. We're going to do our very best to stay on the same trajectory that we would have been on if we were all together. Is it different? Yes. But we will we get through this? Yes. In the meanwhile, let's take advantage of the time that we have been given. I have preached for many, many years that we should not just be having church, but we should be the church. And what an opportunity for us to be the church right now. In a world touched by fear and uncertainty, the church should walk with our shoulders square and our our heads held high. We serve a God that has promised to hold our right hand and to be with us all the way. Please stay faithful in every area of our walk with God. We should be praying, reading the Word, taking time to study the Word. And now that we have so much quiet time, we have a greater opportunity to meditate upon that Word. Also, we believe that giving is a part of our worship to the Lord. And so if you haven't signed up for online giving to Hatchman Apostolic Church, this would be a great time to do so. If you look on our church Facebook page, there are some clear and concise instructions that can help you to continue to be faithful in your giving. May the Lord bless you and keep His hand upon your family as we move forward. Remember our theme this year is Together We Can, and so together we can. Together we will get through this season, and so I pray that God would richly bless each and every one of you. And from our home and our heart to yours, Sister Boyd and I want you to know that we love you and that we're praying for you. God bless you in Jesus' name. Well, good morning
2: everyone and praise the Lord. I hope this video finds you well and certainly weathering the storm that we know Jesus is going to carry us through. Today we're going to continue our study on the authority of God's Word. In fact, we're going to conclude that study by talking about its hope. We've discussed its inspiration. We've we've discussed its authority. And today we're going to talk about the hope that we find in in God's Word. We can find eternal life if we will treasure and obey God's Word. Romans 15 and 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might find, might have hope. The year is 1623, and William Shakespeare, England's national poet and playwright, has been dead for seven years. At the time, there is no collection of Shakespeare's works, only a few scattered manuscripts of questionable origin and integrity. Shakespeare is on the cusp of falling into the same nameless sea that has rendered so many eternally anonymous. He was the son of a glove maker, and so nothing in his background suggested anything of nobility or even notability. In fact, it's something of a miracle that we even recognize his name today. He began a career as an actor that would, in time, give way to an obvious giftedness with words and an obvious giftedness with ideas. However, he did not necessarily invent the plots of his plays. He told old stories, and not just any old stories, but he told stories that at the time everyone knew well, stories that people had heard before. But his audiences were riveted. He knew that if he could tell the story with its dramatic potential, he would find it, he would tell it, and he would tell it in such a way that no one could have ever imagined. He once took an old story so overplayed in Renaissance England that it was the center of a thousand jokes, and he turned it into Hamlet, arguably one of the most recognizable of his works. Although he didn't necessarily invent the plots of his plays he did invent some things he invented words words like cheap have you ever used the word cheap if you have you borrowed from shakespeare's genius to do so because he invented that word the same goes for words like critic champion unreal negotiate radiance and hundreds and hundreds more He invented those words. Now here's what's interesting about all of this. Shakespeare never really bothered to publish any of his own works, save the occasional poem or the requested dedication. And so history almost lost Shakespeare himself and his works. Shakespeare's legacy, however, rested solely in the hands of his his compilers. And the Shakespeare that we know today is the Shakespeare that they left us. In fact, this is true with most important and prolific figures throughout history. Many of history's philosophers and teachers left a legacy. Never any writings of their own necessarily, but a legacy because their students told their stories. And those legacies solely rested on the integrity of those students. And so every great idea has required great students to transmit it. Democracy had its Jefferson. Emancipation had its Lincoln. The law of Moses had its, uh, the law of the law had its Moses, and the praise of Israel had the psalmist David. Heaven had its John. The grace of God had its Paul. But most importantly, Jesus, God manifest in flesh, had his four evangelists. Jesus left no writings of his own, Instead, his life, his teachings, his legacy were safeguarded to his apostles. John's text tells us that Jesus told he chose these disciples specifically. They were eyewitnesses, and they became the guarantors of the truth of the gospel. When we read the accounts of Jesus, we are reading the accounts that he himself authorized. Yet, as was the case in that day, so is the case in this day there will always be opposition and there will always be skepticism to the word of god you see the main focus of the enemy is to dilute disturb and detract from the word of god and the authority of the word of god in our lives and so today we're going to particularly speak about the skepticism that we find in reference to the four gospels as it pertains to Jesus himself. In several weeks, we're going to celebrate the Easter season. And with this, the Christian world certainly will gear their services, and understandably so, toward the cross and its resurrection. However, with this season, it inevitably gives rise to modern skepticism and philosophy in the secular world. But what's even more alarming is that this season will also give rise to that same type of thinking within the so-called christian community as well case in point it would certainly seem that it has become an almost annual tradition for certain theologians and scholars to publish articles in very big name newspapers they claim the gospel's portrait of jesus is not trustworthy you see these scholars. They typically publish these types of works in their own books, but their books are usually geared towards an audience that is limited to the experts in their own field. However, the newspaper articles are written for a wide audience and are, not coincidentally, perfectly coordinated to to print during Christmas and Easter seasons. It's at those times when the hearts of The common man, the hearts and the minds of the average reader tends to turn to more religious matters. And so in 2019, we find one such article and column that was written. I'll withhold the names of the people and I'll withhold the name of the particular paper that it was written in, but I would like to use this as an overall illustration of where the mindsets are today. Pay special attention to the questions that are asked, and the answers that are given. The interview starts off with the interviewer saying, Happy Easter, Reverend. To start, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that. The interviewee replies, When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. For me, it's impossible to tell the story of Easter without also telling the story of the cross. The crucifixion is a first century litching. It couldn't be more pertinent to our world today. And then the question is asked, but without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we are left with just the crucifixion. He states, crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive Godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that the reason for hope? The question, but isn't a Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? When the message is only about love, that's less religion and more philosophy. The answer, for me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession that seems to me a, to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? This person goes on to say that the virgin birth is a bizarre claim and has nothing to do with the message of Jesus Christ. And then one final answer. He he questions for someone like myself who is drawn to Jesus' teaching but doesn't necessarily believe in the virgin birth or a physical resurrection, what am I? Am I a Christian? And the answer, well, you sound an awful lot like me, and I'm a Christian minister. I often feel like we are in the middle of another reformation and a 500-year cycle, and that we are in a spiritual crisis. Christianity is at something of a turning point but I think this questioning and this reaching is even bigger than Christianity. It reaches into many religious traditions. This wrestling with climate change and wrestling with levels of violence in our world, wrestling with authoritarianism and the intractable character of gender oppression is forcing communities within the religions to say something is horribly wrong here. We are at a spiritual crisis, as more people feel it too, something apocalyptic. And something is trying to be born. And so while I strongly disagree monumentally with the overall teaching of this minister, I agree in part there is something that is shaking the grounds of the people and where they are standing. But my answer to that is if there was ever a time for the church of the living God to be vocal, that time is now. Almost always there is a condescending tone presented by those opponents or the skeptics of Jesus of the Bible. They attack the dignity and the mental stability of those who believe in a physical resurrection, a virgin birth, and adhere to absolutes when it comes to the word of God. Interestingly, however, is the Jesus that they attempt to replace Jesus with. The Jesus that they offer invariably is a Jesus built in their own image, an amalgamation of the latest trends in political and academic ideology. Here are just a few of the ones that we have been asked to believe in over the last several decades. There's the Marxist Jesus, a peasant laborer who tried and failed to begin an economic revolution, overthrowing the upper classes. There's a capitalist Jesus, a reaction against the Marxist image who solves the world's problems with an ethos of hard work and a free market. There's the global warming Jesus, a Jesus who praises the lilies of the field and castigates the forest-destroying Solomon. There's the socialist Jesus, an anti-capitalist Jesus who rails against corporations or the money changers. There's the self-help Jesus, the Jesus who teaches us how to be wealthy, and happy there's the skeptical Jesus whose primary pursuit in life was debunking tri- traditional beliefs and then there is the social justice Jesus who says judgment is a myth and that condoning every conceivable thought of man as a human right rather than moral degradation the fact in all of this is that none of them work none of this works Not only are these depictions or these images of Jesus incorrect and inaccurate, they simply don't work. The reason is that each concept only relates to one social group and one construct of each portrait. For instance, the Marxist Jesus is only intelligible in certain times and in certain places. The skeptical Jesus is almost totally incoherent in cultures that are more synchronistic, The self-help Jesus, he speaks gibberish in developing countries where resources are chronically limited. And the social justice Jesus completely contradicts the law that Jesus came to fulfill and not to destroy. And so if we are not careful, if we are not careful, we too can find ourselves in danger. In danger of having a build-your-own Jesus approach to the faith. The fact is that we are in dangerous positions when we attempt to fit Jesus into our mold and refuse to allow him to transform us into his image. No version of the Jesus that any human being could ever create could compare to the Jesus in which the apostles wrote. You see, the Jesus that they gave us, he doesn't fit into any category of our own contemporary world that they have constructed for Him. And so the overall issue, the overarching issue that we run into when we have this build-your-own approach is that we have, as a society, created a buffet-style approach to Scripture which puts people into a position of believing half-truths and whole-lies. You see, the result is making Jesus into someone he is not. When man creates Jesus into his own image, Jesus ceases to be God, big G, and becomes just a God, little G, among all the others. You see, the Jesus of the apostles, he did, in fact, congregate with sinners. He did associate with those of ill recruit, But he did not fit in with them and he did not join in with them in their sin. No, Jesus emphatically told them to go and sin no more. It's already been stated that Jesus did not come to eradicate the law. Yes, he did appear to go against the establishment and not with the proverbial flow, so to speak. But Jesus did not abolish the law. No, he established a new flow, one that would give us the power to obey his word. And unlike most modern versions of him, who is mild-mannered and perfectly pleasant, Jesus often had very hard sayings and left people perfectly per- perplexed at what he said. At one moment, we find him and hear him say, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden. Yet, other times, we read the words, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. In one instance, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life, and life more abundantly. However, in others, we would hear him say, it would be better that a millstone would be hung around their neck and they cast into the sea. He sounded perfectly reasonable one moment, when he asked and admirer, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. But before you know it, he's saying the kinds of things that no other sane man can say when he said, before Abraham was, I am. From a congratulatory remark such as, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, to get thee behind me, Satan, to the same man and in the same conversation. In other words, while modern experts are trying to flatten out Jesus and ironing out all his so-called wrinkles in order to make him more presentable to our cosmopolitan palate, the Jesus of the apostles bears the striking and truly comforting marks of a real, living, breathing person. stutterly unpredictable and impossibly out of touch with modern sensibilities. You see, depending on our situation and where we are in life, that's the Jesus that we want. Or at least he's the one we think we want. I'll I'll make that plain. You see, there's times we want the lion. And then there's other times we want the lamb. And we want to be able to choose which one based on the situation that we're experiencing. But Jesus isn't the lion or the lamb. He's the lion and the lamb. And here's where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. He's not going to be what we want him to be. But he demands to be what we need him to be. And that, my friends, is the only way that it works. And so that's where most of society get it totally wrong. Any Jesus that I construct will be just as flawed as I am. He would be just as fallible as my own human intellect could make him. But if I will allow God to be God, the Jesus of the apostles, his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. But his ways are perfect and they are unmatched. Sometimes we we, we make purchases of certain items, certain commodities in our lives that have a certain name attached to them and sometimes we pay for that name at a premium. Yet yeah, there are some items that you can purchase that seem similar <laughs> but they're not quite what the real thing possesses. We call them knockoffs. You can find them on street corners. At a glance the same logo, a similar design, close enough name. Perhaps you thought you bought a a watch and you actually got a Bolivia Maybe you thought you were getting a Rolex, but at Closer Look, you got a Polex watch. I read something very interesting online the other day that sort of kind of encompasses this. And it really and truly encompasses where we are as a society. The key to successful merchandising all over the world is not to waste time creating your own brand, but to simply change a couple of letters of an already popular existing one. Just enough to get you to buy Familiarity, yet not the real thing. But hear me today. Counterfeit currency has no value. And a counterfeit Jesus has no value in anyone's life. Over the past 150 years or so, scholars have set out upon a quest to find the real historical Jesus. There's a way of thinking that is attempting to overtake the portrait of the Apostles' and what they painted of Jesus as inaccurate or self-serving. This, I say quote-unquote, scholarly thought process asserts that Jesus in the Bible is not authentic, rather a construct of what the apostles made him out to be. Yet they do surmise, despite the apostles' invention, that some of the authentic traits of Jesus made it through to modern culture. There are even versions of the four Gospels that have been rewritten, republished with color-coded statements of Jesus to indicate the words that are authentic as opposed to the ones that are inauthentic. You see, there's many, many issues with this, so many more than we could even cover in this one lesson. However, what is even more critical is that these people, this group they're using their own intellect to deduce this information rather than using rigorous methods of research. What's more, they avail themselves to teaching from scholars that live centuries beyond the apostles. What they're using are messages that were written and accounts for people who were already far removed from the original. And so again, we're left with an inauthentic, hollow version that can only relate to one side of the spectrum or scale. Versions of this kind of thinking are in fact widely practiced. Too frequently people pick and choose a Jesus who sits more comfortably among the other concepts of their mind. Some don't like the Jesus who speaks of judgment. They prefer instead the Jesus of John 3.16 but If one decides to take it upon himself to decide which one is the true Jesus, who is to say that the real Jesus is the one that the apostles spoke of? Who is to say that the real Jesus is the one who only spoke of hell and judgment and the Jesus of the apostles and the one they invented is the Jesus of John 3.16? Modern versions of Jesus almost always fall on one side of this error or the other. It is the only conceivable notion that we could take is that the only Jesus that we need to know is the Jesus of the apostles. It's only Him that holds everything into two perfect balance tensions. major point in all of this, there is no other Jesus that we could ever get to know than the one of which the apostles wrote. I don't want to know the version that the modern society can think of. I don't want to know the version that theologians or even scholars can think of. I want to hear from the man who laid his head on the master's chest and heard his heartbeat. I want to hear from the ones who can actually say, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, it's through their witness that we find the Jesus that we are to know. Jesus gave them the keys to the kingdom. Now we know that by John's own admonition, that there is more that Jesus did that could ever be written. He said as such in John 21 and 25. He said, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one. I suppose that even the world... Itself could not contain the books that should be written. But hear me today. This book that we hold in our hand, this book is God-breathed and it is divinely inspired. Men were moved by the Holy Ghost to write the words in this book. And every word that is written is true and the things that the apostles tell us concerning Him are all-encompassing and completely accurate. We need to know Him. And what we need to know of Him can only be found in this holy book. Romans 15 and 4, where we begin. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. What has been written is not only essential, it is absolutely necessary. They were written for our learning, for our teaching, for our instruction and doctrine. And that happens through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures. That word patience means cheerful endurance, constancy, the root word meaning to remain. Comfort meaning emperation, ortation, solace, comfort, and consolation. A calling near, to call near, to invite, invoke, or besiege and so our hope our expectation and our faith is found in the never changing word of god it is found in the fact that the word is alive and it calls to us to be rooted and grounded in its instruction and allow it To mold, make, and renew our minds into the same mind as Christ Jesus. Cultures, concepts, and opinions constantly clash, evolve, and waver. But Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Throughout the ages, He simply remains. It was the Sabbath day in Capernaum, and Jesus begins to teach from the Holy Script when the outrageous begins to occur. A man stands from the crowd and with an unearthly voice begins to cry aloud, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art. The Holy One of God. Without hesitation, Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and immediately the man is released from his bondage. It's important to understand now that all four Gospels tell a semblance of this story. However, all of them tell it from differing angles. All of the elements of each one's depiction and their recollection are absolutely important. But what is even more interesting to note is that all of them contain elements that point to a central truth and that is the authority of Jesus. Matthew didn't mention the synagogue Venice explicitly. He told the story of the centurion who was so convinced of Jesus' authority that only a word was necessary. He said that Jesus cast out demons and when he went over to the lake of the other side, demoniacs came to Jesus and said the same things that had been said earlier in the synagogue. Thou art the Holy One of Israel. Mark and Luke both mentioned the casting out of the demon, but mentioning more so the people's astonishment and his teaching and the authority in which he spoke. Then there's John. He spoke regarding more of what most likely happened after that event, when Jesus told the people, I am the bread of life. And that if anyone would inherit eternal life, it would be by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Again, perplexing, hard sayings as people one by one began to leave the room because it was too much for them too hard for them to comprehend or even attend to when only the 12 remained jesus asked the question are you also going to leave but peter replied to whom would we go you have the words that give eternal life, we believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. You see, Jesus' true disciples heard His words, recognized His authority, and remained believing that His words, however difficult, however uncompromising, were their only hope. It was those disciples that He chose. It was their testimony of Him that He authorized. And so the psalm lyrics say it best, and they say it correctly. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so blessed are they who treasure, blessed are they who fall in love with, And blessed are they who obey the truth of God's word. For in them and in him we have eternal life. I want us to pray together. And I want us just to ask the Lord to take this word and seal it in our hearts. Because I believe this word can seal us into the day of his coming. Lord, we love you today. God, we thank you for your mercy. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is forever settled in heaven and that every promise in the book belongs to us. We just ask you now in the name of Jesus that you would touch every heart, every mind of every man, every woman, and every child that may be under the sound of the voice of this broadcast right now. And we ask you now to just lay your hands upon every family to keep us, to draw us nearer and closer to you in the precious in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May God bless you. We love you. And we hope to see you soon. In Jesus' name.
0: This message has been brought to you today by the Media Ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church.